This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The left's scorched earth policy in the war on Western Christian culture. The leftist war on culture continues unabated, even while the leftists themselves deny that it is happening. All around us, we see the wreckage of cultural institutions that were once thought to be unassailable. At the same time, the left tries to convince us that everything is fine. In fact, they tell us that it is getting better by the minute. Mr. John Horvat addresses this particular tendency in his article, The War on the Culture War Flares Up Again. The 2021 Virginia election serves as proof that the culture war is ongoing and far from over. Just when it seemed that the left would declare the culture war over, again, someone ruined everything and let off a volley. Old wounds reopened and both sides are firing at each other with a vengeance. Indeed, the 2021 Virginia election was all about culture. What changed the game was the fight over critical race theory, radical sex education, gender ideology, and procured abortion. The controversy awakened mama bear instincts in suburbia over what the children were being taught in schools. The roars flipped the state. All across the nation, similar reactions were registered in 2021 election contests. The enormous impact of cultural issues proves that the culture war is far from being over. When pursued with intelligence, these battles energize voters and leave the left in a shambles. This shift was not supposed to happen in now purple Virginia. Thus, the 2021 elections teach vital lessons for those engaged in the culture war. The first lesson is that the left hates and fears the culture war by which conservatives oppose its agenda. Leftists wage war on the culture war. They prefer to advance their alarming agenda using stealth, without debate. Thus, the left is obsessed with ending the culture war. Over the last decades, liberals have tried to disparage the culture war as a throwback from the 90s. They have often declared the war over and call upon conservatives to accept their defeat and move on. The most common tactic is to deny that the war even exists. Conservative culture warriors are, at best, quote-unquote, domestic terrorists, without any legitimacy inside an overwhelming liberal culture. They are to be belittled and despised as, quote-unquote, deplorables. The liberal media does its part by ignoring conservatives and their battles to the greatest possible extent. However, the real reason why liberals want to end the culture war is that it frames the debate as a moral battle. The left cannot tolerate definitions of right and wrong. They cannot handle moral arguments that fittingly showcase their unruly passions. The culture war deniers try to wish the nightmare away. Even while conservatives are still firing, the left wants to declare the conflict over. As part of the war on the culture war, the left will never recognize the victories of the cultural right. Leftists will ignore, for example, 
the 1,661 abortion clinics closed since 1991 as if it never happened. They will also deny that critical race theory is taught at schools, even when it is found in school curricula and on websites. Whenever the left is confronted by its disastrous policies, it will always insist that the solution is more leftism, never less. The latest liberal tactic is to turn cultural or moral issues into racial ones. Anyone who defends a righteous cause can be immediately labeled as a racist, sexist, or other bigoted titles of hatred. Critical race theory is reduced to a school issue, not the major paradigm shift that it is. The left's total war on the culture war employs any tactic to deny action on the moral battlefield and achieve its goal of imposing unnatural Marxist philosophies upon the nation. One more important lesson from the 2021 elections is that cultural issues matter. Conservatives need to be convinced that addressing cutting-edge cultural issues can lead to victory. If well presented, these issues deliver success because they address deep problems within the souls of countless Americans. They represent legitimate anxieties about the future. The culture war has kept these issues alive and before the American public. In election after election, the moral conservatives, with their powerful pro-life voting bloc, have come to the rescue of moderate Republicans who promise everything but deliver next to nothing. The power of these issues has proven itself despite the lack of support from the liberal establishment. Unexpected victories like those in 2021 show how effectively they contradict the supposedly prevailing liberal narrative. The irrational ravings of leftists in the face of these victories show their despair and exhaustion. If the culture war is ineffective, the left has not gotten the word. Its paranoia reveals weakness, not strength. The final lesson is to remain engaged despite all the setbacks that appear. Indeed, some conservatives also want to declare the culture war is over. Author Rod Dreher claims the levees holding back bad culture are broken, and conservatives would best build arcs of refuge to ride the waves of the oncoming storm. His Benedict option calls for a conservative strategic retreat to regroup, thus surrendering the battlefield to an enemy that is in even worse shape and exhausted. Events like the 2021 elections show that the battle is far from over. It is a war of wills. The only real option is to remain engaged in the culture war that the left hates and fears. The best strategy is to attack the left's vulnerable points, like critical race theory and drag queen story hours, which seek to transform America into a godless nation without any moral compass. Above all, Conservatives must confide in God to come to their help. Disguised behind the facade of a thousand skirmishes is an all-out war against God and His order. 
those who champion his cause can expect his assistance. For many parents, the culture war became obvious when COVID closed the schools. Suddenly, classroom conversations took place over the Internet. Educational bureaucrats had long speculated about such a change. Abandoning school buildings would save millions of dollars. Buses would no longer be necessary. Perhaps a single teacher could teach more children. Maybe we could replace teachers with recorded lessons through which the students could move at their own pace. In practice, so-called distance learning had one unexpected effect. Parents could now see and hear what was going on in their children's classes, not just on one day a year that the parents were invited to visit, but every day and every lesson. Many parents listened, and they did not like what they heard. It was bad enough in English, history, math, and science classes. However, the most vigorous objections came when the parents heard their children's health classes, especially those parts of the classes that dealt with human reproduction or preventing human reproduction. Mr. Edwin Benson explores this issue in his essay, Why Sex Ed Teachers Are Thrilled with the Return to In-Person Learning. The effort to cast parents as roadblocks to education continues. An expressive example is the recent furor raised by Attorney General Merrick Garland when he turned the FBI loose on parents that he labeled as potential domestic terrorists. Nowhere are these roadblocks more evident than the efforts of some educators to hide sex education materials from parents. Education Week, the trade journal for school administrators, recently ran an article titled Privacy, Porn, and Parents in the Room, Sex Education's Pandemic Challenges. It begins with a sentence that should concern all parents. Quote, Sex education involves delicate discussions at the best of times, but the last year has brought unprecedented challenges for students and teachers alike. Unquote. Indeed, the delicate discussions involve students sharing their most intimate feelings with a classroom full of their peers. However, the article implies that the really safe space is parent-free. The Pandemic challenge is that parents often had access to lessons taught in the educational pretense known as distance learning. The article cites other experts who make the same point. Discussions about abortion, homosexuality, and the rest of the radical sexual agenda are far less successful when those pesky parents loiter about. One of the article's sources is Brittany McBride, the Associate Director of Sex Education for Advocates for Youth. Quote, These young people have to have the ability to be centered in their education and have robust conversations in a really safe space to really learn from those experiences. Unquote. Advocates for Youth does not conceal the connection between sex education and the overall woke revolution. They declare, quote, Young people understand that reproductive and sexual health and rights are inextricably tied to social justice and the fight for liberation. Join thousands of youth activists and adult allies as we build a better and more equitable world. Unquote. The Advocates for Youth website is every moral parent's nightmare. 
the organization promotes several campaigns. Among them are Abortion Out Loud, the Free the Pill Youth Council, Amaze, which boasts, quote, real info and fun animated videos that give young people all the answers they actually want to know about sex, their bodies, and relationships, unquote. There is an LGBTQ section called My Story Out Loud and The Condom Collective. The Education Week article also cites a document titled National Sex Education Standards, 76 pages of educational jargon. The whole document puts a professional gloss on their primary goal, that of promoting promiscuity. The first lie in the document is the title. When casual onlookers hear the term national, they assume that the document was prepared by the Federal Department of Education, or some collection of state departments of education, or perhaps a national organization of teachers, like the National Council of Teachers of English. The implication is that a qualified national organization assembled an objective set of guidelines for teachers to use. However, the National Sex Education Standards are the product of FOSE, an acronym for Future of Sex Education. FOSE is apparently an organization composed of three other groups, Advocates for Youth, CECUS, and ANSWER. CECUS is short for the Sexuality Information and Educational Council of the United States. Their website lists their values in this manner. Quote, CECUS advances comprehensive sexuality education as a means of building a foundation for a long-term culture shift that will positively impact all levels of society, particularly issues of gender and racial equity, sexuality, sexual and reproductive health, consent, personal safety, and autonomy, unquote. Answer is a project of Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey. Their mission is very similar to the other organizations. Quote, ANSWER is a national organization that provides and promotes unfettered access to comprehensive sexuality education for young people and the adults who teach them. We believe in young people. We are dedicated to ensuring young people have the knowledge and skills they need to be happy, healthy, and safe well into the future. This means that they should be able to access age-appropriate and medically accurate information about sexuality directly and without interference, unquote. ANSWER also connects itself to other radical movements. A message from ANSWER's executive director states, quote, Two years ago, we launched an initiative to increase our understanding of how racial bias intersects with sexual and reproductive health. We have spent time together learning and unlearning to build a foundation in which we would center racial and reproductive justice in our work, unquote. Thus, these national standards are only national in the desire to subject all America's children to this radical vision. 
so-called sex education is only the hook to separate the kids from their quote-unquote repressive parents. Once freed, they are ready to receive the entire woke package. The background and visions section of the standards is more circumspect than their creators' websites. Here, there is no linkage to radical campaigns and projects. Since a wider audience might view this document, the message speaks of freedom and opportunity. Quote, quality sex education goes beyond delivering information. It provides young people with opportunities to explore their own identities and values, along with the values and beliefs of their families and communities. It also allows young people to practice the communication, negotiation, decision-making, and assertiveness skills they need to create healthy relationships, both sexual and non-sexual, throughout their lives. Unquote. Page 3 of the standards lists the contributors and reviewers. Indeed, no one claims a connection to the U.S. Department of Education. Only two are employees of state departments of education, and one of them is retired. Six are college professors. Three are consultants. There is only one local official from the District of Columbia Public Schools, and the only grade school teacher works in a private school in a Philadelphia suburb. The other 23 contributors represent various foundations. They read like a list of the usual suspects, including Planned Parenthood, Gender Spectrum, the American Sexual Health Association, and the three organizations discussed above. Notice the absence of anyone who might bring a more traditional moral tone. Anti-abortion organizations are absent. There are no ties to organizations connected to religious groups. No one represents a parent's organization, even usually liberal ones like the National PTA. These standards reflect the people who wrote them. A typical example states that, quote, By the end of second grade, students should be able to explain why it is important to show respect for different kinds of families. For example, nuclear, single parent, blended, intergenerational, adoptive, same gender, interracial, unquote. There are also numerous mentions of intersecting identities, as well as gaining and withholding consent. The contributors did pay lip service to the idea of refraining from sexual activity, and parents were listed as possibly trusted adults. Such language gives school administrators a little cover from inquiring parents. Perhaps there would be less cynicism if Advocates for Youth's campaigns included communicating with parents, or modesty and abstinence. The COVID crisis opened the eyes of many parents who were unaware of what their children were taught. Now that most students are back in school, parents should be very skeptical when educators tell them that, quote, our program is in line with national standards, unquote. Always ask for a copy of the standards, and examine them closely. 
Despite the Attorney General's assertions, parents have the God-given right to know what schools are teaching their children. A couple episodes ago, the Return to Order moment looked at the leftist attack on classical music and birdwatching. Today, we conclude this episode with a similar tale in which the leftists take on another cultural institution previously dominated by liberals, in this case, the world of fine art. Mr. Benson exposes this leftist absurdity in his essay, When Radicals Turned on Centrists at the Chicago Art Institute. The Art Institute of Chicago is a world-class grand art museum. It has a magnificent collection of over 300,000 works of art. The museum sits on the shore of Lake Michigan, in a building dating back to the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893, which celebrated the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's discovery of America. For years, 82 volunteer docents made regular trips downtown to share their love of art with the public. A docent is a trained volunteer guide whose expertise turns a quick museum visit into a meaningful experience. Each docent received 18 months of training, followed by regular meetings to keep updated. In addition, they spent countless hours with visitors and school groups explaining the museum's art collections. In return, they enjoyed the appreciation of those who shared their commitment to the museum and experienced the joy of imparting knowledge. On average, the docents logged 15 years of service. That service ended on September 3, 2021, when each received a memorandum from Veronica Stein, the museum's Women's Board Executive Director of Learning and Public Engagement. First, the memo thanked them for their service and outlined the museum's value to the community. The axe fell in the third paragraph. Quote, Over the last year, we have had the opportunity to evaluate our volunteer education program. As a civic institution, we acknowledge our responsibility to rebuild the volunteer educator program in a way that allows community members of all income levels to participate, responds to issues of class and income equity, and does not require financial flexibility to participate. Rather than refresh our current program systems and processes, we feel that now is the time to rebuild our program from the ground up. That means the program's current iteration will come to an end." Unquote. Put simply, the bureaucrat fired the docents. She continued, quote, The museum aims to build a responsive, sustainable, and inclusive program that integrates the goals outlined in our strategic plan to honor and embrace our civic role by investing in Chicago-area learners, educators, and creatives to reinvigorate in-gallery learning programs to promote accessibility, equitable teaching approaches, and greater inclusion of visitors' cultures, unquote. Despite the cumbersome flow of words, Veronica Stein's reasons can be summed up in two of the words that she used equitable, and inclusion. She omitted using the word diversity, which is uncommon when it comes to leftist monologues. 
By definition, the docents were people who could afford to volunteer their time out of love of the arts. Unsurprisingly, most were upper-middle-class women supported by their husbands' ample incomes. Most were also white. On September 13th, the docents' organization responded in a letter to Institute President James Rondeau. It adopted a conciliatory tone. Quote, We believe that the Department of Learning and Public Engagement and the now former volunteer docent corps share a common goal, to create a meaningful and welcoming experience at the Art Institute of Chicago for students, visitors, donors, and members of all backgrounds, unquote. From this paragraph flowed over 1,500 words, describing the many ways that the docents helped the museum fulfill its cultural mission. The docents even tried employing woke language themselves, quote, It is our hope that these comments be taken as constructive, so that accessibility to art and arts education among all museum volunteers, staff, donors, AIC members, students, and guests be equitable and inclusive, unquote. This story unfolded slowly because most docents honored the museum's request to refrain from public comment. However, as all such things do, the real story eventually emerges. On September 30th, the Art Institute's board chairman, Robert M. Levy, defended the firing in the Chicago Tribune. The op-ed's title conveyed the spirit behind this ridiculous act. The Art Institute and its critics must embrace change. (laughs) Once the docents were essential, now they were critics. Perhaps the docents should have seen the acts coming in Veronica Stein's statement when she took her job on March 19, 2021. Quote, I am delighted that the Art Institute shares the priorities that have guided my work throughout my career designing culturally responsive programming and anti-racist curricula, cultivating fully accessible spaces, and ensuring staff wellness and learning, unquote. According to the anti-racist curricula that Veronica Stein espouses, people like the docents are cultural oppressors. Moreover, these women are actual purveyors of cultural oppression instructing the young in fine arts, predominantly Western and meritocratic world. They possess many characteristics listed in Aspects and Assumptions of Whiteness and White Culture, published by the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2020. Their freely offered labor proves that they display the Messiah Complex, that anti-racists find in many white liberals. Ironically, Veronica Stein's Master of Arts degree came from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. The docents she fired had aided and abetted this African-American woman's rise to a high-ranking position with a preeminent art museum. It is equally ironic that the docents belong to a voting bloc that has become increasingly liberal. According to figures compiled by the Pew Research Center and reported by National Public Radio, 
48% of white suburban college-educated women voted primarily for Democrats in 1990, a number that rose to 60% by 2016. Many pundits credit them with President Biden's slim victory in 2020. In 2016, the political analysts at 538 explained the political activity of white suburban women. Quote, Roughly speaking, a white voter will lean left if she is more college than church, and will lean right if she is more church than college. Carrying the analysis further, they explained, Both college whites and church whites exist in ideologically pure bubbles, where like-minded friends uncritically reinforce each other's beliefs, unquote. Most likely, the Art Institute's docent program was one such ideologically pure bubble. Thanks to the woke Veronica Stein, that bubble just burst. This dilemma is one that many arts organizations face. Once the darlings of the liberal world, museums, orchestras, and similar bodies find themselves stretched to the political breaking point. Since the 60s, the art establishment has tried to prove that they were in the vanguard of social revolution. Increasingly, they dismissed traditional concepts of beauty and embraced the vulgarities of artists like the infamous Robert Maplethorpe. For many years, they looked down on the tastes of the more conventional and the religious. In the modern world, cutting-edge vulgarities are now commonplace. Avant-garde museums are no longer needed. Their one-time friends abandon these liberal bastions as representatives of the Western culture that the woke oppose. The cultural Marxists that promote woke ideology do not care about art. They want to move toward an egalitarian society where there is no room for any excellence. They do not want to promote art appreciation, but to destroy beauty. The unity of cultural Marxism with critical race theory makes sense because they both seek to create class struggle and destroy the social harmony that would exist in a genuinely Catholic society. This concludes the leftist scorched earth policy in the war on Western Christian culture. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So by rating us, you can help the Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family and Property, TFP.